Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening in and around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us on Twitter using the hashtag SceneFromAbove and can access the podcast in a variety of ways, including, but not limited to, our websites jogger.co.uk and acgeospatial.co.uk, Blueberry and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts if you head that way. Andrew, we are together in the same room. Uh, We're both in the catapult today, in the satellite applications catapult. This is quite exciting. This is about the third time we've ever met. (laughs) It's definitely (laughs) the first time we've done a podcast together in the same room. Yeah, so so those of you who don't know, the satellite applications catapult is part of what we call the space cluster out of Harwell, south of Oxford in the United Kingdom. It's a pretty big space cluster. They have various buildings and ESA have a building here. And it, it feels to me like a super high-tech office. And we're in a pod on the, the second floor recording this. Even in the, the short period of time that uh, I think the catapult has been in existence, it's really great to see how much it's grown. I think in short, in the UK, the space industry is booming and it's great to be part of it. Definitely, and you probably saw this week as well that it was announced that there's a competition to try and get space technology into the NHS. So yeah, and you're right, the catapult down here, the Satellite Applications Catapult and ESA, it's a real hub and some great companies down here and hopefully as time goes on we'll be able to interview some of them on this podcast. Let's do the news, 26 June 2018. Sad news. Oh, sad news. Only two things launched since we last spoke. We're now up to 145 things, according to Space Track, from 143 things. Well, that's a bit disappointing. One of them was a GLONASS satellite. So we've had very little launched recently. Maybe they're just stocking them all up, ready for a, a, a big number of launches at the end of the summer. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> is there an optimum launch time? Anyway, so uh, one of the things that have, has cropped up fairly recently is this master map announcement. Now, it's not really EO-specific, it's more um, related to the Ordnance Survey. Again, we're, we're, we're very UK-focused here, but master map is probably the best mapping data set that is available worldwide, I, I, I would probably claim. They're opening it up. It's not specifically clear how they're opening it up, but any move, I think we both feel anyway, any move to open up data is, is a good move. Definitely. Um, and at the moment they're saying we're going to get the master map topography layer and this um, topography layer identifiers, which they call TOIDs. We're so spoiled now for data. Definitely. You're right in saying that this is the key data set, really, that most people who use GIS want to get their hands on to do any sort of UK-based analyses, just because of the the completeness of the data and the quality of it. I think it's amazing that the OS are doing this. You know, it's early days of the Geospatial Commission, and we look forward to seeing what they're going to do. Maybe the opening up of this data also offers the ability in the future to have very good training data sets for working with more complex satellite data the possibilities you know in that sense quite profound it'd be interesting to see if they release the image layer that goes with master map because alongside the lidar data that the environment agency for england and wales puts out that's you're right there's an amazing um, opportunity there for, for doing that sort of feature extraction stuff 
Anyway, cool. Okay, on to other bits of news. So um, I came across something on the BBC website, and it's about our friend Sentinel Five P. And it's a uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's an amazing image um, of formaldehyde as mapped by Sentinel Five P over India, and it's really really interesting i think it, it really highlights the scale of some of the issues they have around pollution um now formaldehyde in this map it's not all from pollution formaldehyde is also naturally released by vegetation but david uh, hurst <laughs> yes <laughs> he's been busy <laughs> but it it is very telling i think you can start to see certain patterns, like there's a definite fringe down the western coast of India. Um, so you can start to make inferences about air mass movements and things like that. Yeah, I don't know if you, you had a chance to look at this. I, I really do think it's great. And I'm hesitant to say this, but I think I heard that we're going to start getting access to Sentinel-5P in the autumn. Ah, OK. And this, I just find it exciting. I want to know why they're clustering in certain places if this can be linked to climatic change or if it's linked to levels of development because we saw with predecessors to 5P that they could see the it correlated nicely or as nice as it could do at its scale with emissions from the great industrialization of China the the thing that i find interesting is we've had sensors that look at things like aerosols and carbon monoxide and methane and sulfur dioxide in the past and and these are all things that sentinel 5p can look at but this feels like a game changer it's really capturing the imagination this copernicus this um series of sentinels yeah and it's just interesting to me as to why other satellites haven't had the same success in the past yeah but it is really really good time to to be looking at this type of thing I don't know if we were planning to talk about it, actually, but I did note that um, Sentinel-3 and its in its twin, 3A and 3B, are flying in tandem at the moment, ah. and they're releasing um, images 30 seconds apart. So that looks pretty cool. Wow, yeah. I think that's to calibrate the instrument rather than do anything specifically funky. It's just magical, isn't it? I, I think we spoke before how generally we would probably look to Sentinel-2 and that would probably be, you know, the solution to most of the problems. But I just think that the age we're in, that things like Sentinel-5P are opening up new answers to challenges that we probably couldn't quantify or even even look at to that to that detail on a sort of such a big scale. Anything else you want to bring up? What did I talk about? There's a few things that have been happening recently. It's been quite quite an interesting month for early June, I think. I mean, I, I saw this thing about um, Airbus enabling online tasking for TerraSorex. They're calling it the one plan. I'm sort of interested in the sense that I'm semi-surprised that you couldn't task it before. It's not really a satellite that I've used that much, but when it was launched, I thought I'd be using quite a lot. Do you think uh, this is in response to the popularity of Sentinel-1? Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, well, I'm not really the SAR expert. I'm always a bit reluctant to say I'm not, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm not a SAR expert, I think I should probably say. So Sentinel-1 is C-band and uh, TerraSAR-X is X-band. And we're at one metre and TerraSAR-X whereas Sentinel-1 is what, te- is it 10 metres? Well, it has a variety of different things. It depends on the operational mode. Maybe you can already do it and, it, and I've just been sort of suckered into a press release. But, um, <laughs> but I, I, do think, I do think that that seems like a, a, a good thing that you can task this. To make this the Airbus show, 
um, I saw that Planet and Airbus have partnered up to deliver new geospatial solutions, apparently. So this is quite a big story, really, that I don't think as yet has gone reported quite enough. So Planet and Airbus aim to provide customers with a suite of global remote sensing data. So they're just basically pooling up their data. But for Airbus and Planet to come together like this is going to, again, it's going to be quite an important thing. So my final bit of news is actually something that we can check when we do the next podcast, see whether or not a number one has ratcheted up on the number of things launched into space. Pakistan is has announced that it's about going to launch the Pactez 1A observatory satellite in July. So this is going to go into an orbit at 610 kilometers and it's basically got some cameras and a couple of different bits and bobs on it. So it's designed to study the impact of climate change through looking at things such as melting glaciers and forest fires and what have you. So it'll be interesting to see if that successfully launches, and what happens with the data at the end of it. Um, one thing I was going to quickly mention that just struck me that I saw this month is sorry, satellites, SSTL, have had their removed debris satellite uh, deployed from the International Space Station, and I think this is the one with a harpoon on it. I think this stuff is, you know... I was going to say, I think this is like space age. <laughs> but it uh, sort of shows my uh, ignorance. But, I mean, it says here, this is, it, we're now in a new era of space junk clearance. And I think, inadvertently, we've kind of followed this a little bit from the distance. But I think it, it's something that concerns the general public a lot. I agree. I, I think it's something that, again, needs a lot of highlighting, that things are being done, that there are missions that are, are being thought through and now being enacted to, to get up there and try and deal with this. Yeah, I mean, there's more there's more dead things up there than there are live things, I think. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Yeah, so there's a, there's a good video on SSTL's webpage about this satellite that's been deployed. I, I think it was deployed from the space station. Yeah, okay. anyway, and that's the news. Hooray, that's the news. Okay, cool. Um, Right, so our topic uh, this time around is basically skills in the sector. And when we're talking about the sector, we're talking primarily about image and data manipulation um, based on Earth observation or remotely sensed data. Probably what we'll end up talking about mainly, just because of our backgrounds, will be optical, remotely sensed imagery. I think, though because we're going to keep it fairly broad, that most of what we're going to talk about in terms of skills will be applicable if you're looking at different types of uh, data to do with atmospherics or cryosphere or whatever. But what we're not going to touch on is satellite building or launching or things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we don't know anything about it. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we we could, you know, speculate. What got me thinking about this was the fact that I've been to the RSPSOC uh, student meeting and we had a a few sort of quick interviews in one of the previous podcasts, so you can go back and hear about that. But the reason that I've um, been invited to talk at those wavelength conferences for the last couple of years has been to talk about the opportunities out there um, once you've done a PhD or a master's. And 
one of the things that I touch on in this talk is the skill set for Earth observation specialists and how that's changed quite a bit in the last 30, 35 years. So, so in terms of the skill sets, what I think has happened is that right at the beginning, there was a lot of geographers and earth scientists that were using the data to try and create new applications. And then there was a period around about the early 90s where it seemed that a lot of physicists were getting on board. And then towards the end of the 90s and early 2000s, it, again, there seemed to be a, a tranche of computer scientists coming in to deal with the data. Um, and then more recently, sort of 2010 till, I don't know, the last few years or so, we've seen a whole host of web developers coming in and just trying to use um, satellite imagery as data. To them, it's a, a data set and it's a large data set. And what they want to do is is try and make those data available in interesting new ways to, to a wider audience. And I suppose the question now is with data being available more openly and with tools being available more openly and with people being a bit more au fait with sort of computing and online environments, is remote sensing open to anyone? So in summary for that little bit, what I'm saying is that obviously there have been physicists and computer scientists and geographers all in a mix, but there have been definite periods, in my opinion, where there's been a focus on certain blocks of skills. So, discuss. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Today's um, earth science is definitely data science, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And you and I are both proud geographers. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously wrong to say, given that, that our ages, that, I mean, if it, from what I've just said, you, you should be a computer scientist and I should be a physicist. But... So what we're saying is that there's a role for all of these skill sets and all these all of these different backgrounds. I might have said this on a previous podcast, I can't remember, but I, I, I generally feel that geographers are let down by their lack of technical skills, whether it be statistics, whether it be mathematics, whether it be a bit of physics, or whether it be computer science. I know that things like GIS are being incorporated into the national curriculum for GCSEs and stuff like that, and I think that's fantastic. So, you know, we sit here benefiting from the huge amounts of data that we've got and the huge amounts of computing power that we've got, and we get to do cool things on a, on a totally different scale that maybe even four or five or six years ago we couldn't have even comprehended. I'm looking at this website called earthdatascience.org. Uh, it's very positive towards earth data scientists. It's an interesting term. I, I quite like it, actually. But why are they in demand? It says here there's a few things, but that no, they are specialised um, interdisciplinary experts. So they've, they've got credentials across a multiple range of disciplines, which I think is probably fair for, for, for a geographer to say. Um, they know how to code. Well, I mean, there's a question here whether you should know how to code and, and what, what should you code and what, what path should you choose. And they understand reproducible and open and open science. I, I, I sort of love that as a as a term, you know, to embrace the the open the open world that we're going into. And they have critical thinking skills, which is which is probably the most underrated skill anybody can have. Choose your niche. Would you say that a specific language is important? I slightly worry that everyone defaults down to Python and R, and but both of those are incredibly useful and they're relatively accessible. 
But I think understanding the process of coding is possibly more useful because there are so many other useful and good languages out there like MATLAB and there are open source versions of that, like something called Octave and C++, which I've never got to grips with. Would you rather people had an understanding of how to create a piece of code, like the flow of um, code? I think that's an interesting question. And I, and I thinking in a sort of career sense, I think it's better to be able to say I've got skills in a certain language is, is my gut feeling. Okay. However, having said all that, and I'm not an SQL super expert, although I do use it and I really like it, I just feel if there's one thing that's always been there throughout my entire career, it's SQL. Yeah. I'm a Python shop. I'm uh, I'm sold on that. That doesn't mean to say that I'm I don't see the merits of R um, or any other language, but. I increasingly feel that time well spent would be time spent on SQL or SQL. Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah. GDAL. The thing with SQL is, at its most simple, it's so beautiful. And at its most complex, it's frightening. <laughs> <laughs> GIS and remote sensing or Earth observation have sat at two ends of a table for too long. But I think the, the time has come to understand that their, their actual natural home is together. I am tempted to describe myself as a data scientist. Yeah. So I, I describe myself on my website as a earth observation and environmental data scientist. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree. I think we've moved beyond describing ourselves as GIS people or mapping people. I think we have to be able to do deal with whatever data is thrown at us and there's all sorts of different formats and things like that linked to this whole idea of coding is understanding and knowledge of it systems again it's not something necessarily that one would immediately think of if you said oh i'm going to go and look at satellite imagery but with more and more cloud environments being um touted and, and things like that are you of the opinion that people would benefit from understanding IT systems, certainly the the different cloud systems that are out there and maybe how to set up servers and things like that on your own on your own systems? Or are you quite happy that people coming into the industry now can rely on someone else to set all that up and all they need to do is, is do the data science? All of us are being pushed by the people coming in with cross and multidisciplinary skills. Data science has come along and opened up a new avenue for the spatial side of things because we've got so much data, um, and especially with raster data, that is is plentiful. So moving on from the technical side of things, I also think that important skills to have, certainly the early stages of your career, or like us, if you're independent, then this is something you, you carry on, are the sort of softer skills. So understanding collaboration or being willing to participate in collaborative projects and things like that is very important and by collaboration what I mean is uh, taking up collaboration software so there's lots of um, online platforms where you can do that so uh, being able to go to a job interview when you're relatively junior and say well yes I I know how to use these different platforms would be useful or just saying you know of them would be useful but also having networking skills and trying to get to know certain people that either you respect or you think are in positions that would be useful to you to get a job that you're particularly looking for. And I will be the first person, and maybe you would agree with me, that networking is, particularly when you're junior, incredibly difficult to do. But the more that I've done it, 
I would definitely say go and try and meet as many people as you can at conferences or at meetings or even just contact them and say, well, can we go for a coffee or whatever? And people are quite often willing to give up half an hour of their time or 20 minutes of their time to have a a quick chat about what it is you're doing. I mean, I I think we should more frequently post things on Twitter or wherever saying, please do get in touch with me. I know a little bit about this. Ask me a question. Um, I don't guarantee that I can can help. But if you're just starting out, then I'd be happy to talk to somebody. I I think what you say is right. It is difficult to, to reach out. Often the people who reach out other people who have more success or more visible in their careers anyway but it, it is a bit of confidence but I mean those those skills that you've described I think are applicable across across the whole spectrum of indeed yeah and I think that to go with that on the softer side of, of the skill base as well is communication and now I used to think well that's going to be written communication or maybe verbal actually these days with all the tools available to the data scientists it's going to be visual more than anything Mm, and being able to create amazing visual communication would be really important as an independent i try to use not necessarily bleeding edge software but certainly newer tools to try and get people to to work more efficiently and get teams to communicate more efficiently and i do get slightly frustrated when sometimes it all comes back to well we need this report in pdf or whatever and actually there are ways that information can be disseminated i think that is is more efficient and just generally nicer to interact with i would much rather enable people to make a decision rather than tell them what the answer should be i I sort of get very drawn into these visualizations um that's the thing that I'm, i'm most like to go and go to an evening meeting about is visualization of data because I just get mesmerized by it. When I was thinking about this, trying to put together um, some ideas about what we could talk about, the other thing that struck me, so we, we've basically, we've got our, our IT and the hard skills there. We've yep. got our softer skills, which is just how you fit in basically yep. to, to the world of work and, and yep. everything else. And the, the final one that struck me is field work and in situ validation. Now, when I was doing my postdoc and then um, in my early career, I was able to go out a lot from the office and go and collect data on the ground to yep. then come back and validate my satellite imagery before I did the analyses. Now, I don't interact enough with more junior people in the sector at the moment to know whether or not that's still a, still a thing to go out and collect your own field work. Oh, data. I, think, I think it It must be. I would hope uh, so. I, I, I mean... Yeah. I, I mean you're a geographer, I'm a geographer. I haven't met a geographer who doesn't love a field trip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I don't do it as much as I'd like. And I think that's I think that's part of a, the career decision. If you become more data involved, you... What I've found in, in previous roles I've had is that a lot of the data collection moves on to the ecologists because the ecologists are already out in the field doing their yeah. ecology side of things. So what happens was I would then train them uh, for half a day or something around the office as that, uh, okay, well, this is what I need to be noted for this type of vegetation or that type of vegetation, yeah. or I need you to write this in a specific way. Absolutely, and data collection is also, it's, how long is a piece of string? I mean, are you surveying lampposts for infrastructure? Are you counting habitats for ecology? Are you, are you taking soil samples? We don't do enough verification of data, I feel. 
and the field data you need to you always need to validate well i think that's a really good point to end on and actually in terms of skills i think um we we've touched on we've quite got loads a, of them yeah we've got <laughs> touched on quite a few but really the message is be ready to experiment and um don't be afraid to learn new things and don't be afraid of asking for training or or whatever um i think the more skills you can have across the the spectrum within earth observation and remote sensing the more employable you are and certainly the more enjoyable your working life will be i think yeah i mean i i think that you can learn any skill in 20 hours there's a book by josh kaufman all oh, right to get to the point where you're good enough probably can get there in 20 hours if it's focused fed back constructive learning Imagine what 20 hours of this podcast could teach you. <laughs> um, so with what that in mind, you? <laughs> if you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then drop us a line through Twitter. Uh, Andrew is available at at map underscore Andrew. And I'm available at AJG Jogger. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, you can reach us at the hashtag SeenFromAbove on Twitter. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much. It's been fun. It has. Goodbye. <laughs> you, get, you get considerable interest. Someone would buy you a white wine spritzer for that. <laughs>